1: Now is the right time to pressure China on its trade policy because the U.S. economy is strong enough to handle it. This, according to President Trump's uh, Kevin Hassett, he is the uh, White House Council of Economic Advisers chairman. Meanwhile, the price of soybeans falling to the lowest levels since at one point since 2016. Now, uh, 2017, a lot of the tariffs that China is planning to impose on U.S. goods will hit the farm belt. Joining me now to discuss this is Tom Halverson. He's chief executive of CoBank, which extends loans and uh, other banking services to farms and other uh, other. Uh wholesale and livestock producers, thank you so much for joining me today, Tom. Um, I want to start with the price of soybeans falling and some of the other kind of market responses to China's tariffs. It seems like people are expecting the farm belt to get hit pretty hard. What are you hearing directly from the farmers who you work with?
0: Yes, good morning, Lisa. Well, what, what we're hearing both from the level of production agriculture as well as their their cooperatives and other agribusiness who aggregate process and sell their uh, their products is uh, a meaningful amount of concern uh, because the market is already uh, starting to respond to this, as you indicate. The price of soybeans is falling, as are other commodity products, and given that we export almost 50% all of the soybeans produced uh, in the United States, we are particularly... Uh, susceptible uh, to changes in foreign demand for our products, given that we export approximately 20% of all all U.S. agricultural products.
1: Particularly susceptible. Can you talk about what you expect the financial consequences uh, to be in real terms?
0: Well, I I would contextualize that by saying since 2013, the United States Department of Agriculture's assessment of net farm income in the United States, it's off 50% since 2013 when it was at its high. Uh, so while, uh, while the rest of the macro economy is generally doing quite favorably, the rural economy and generally agricultural economy in particular is doing much less well right now as a result of uh, commodity prices already having fallen significantly off the highs that they had three or four years ago. And so what we're anticipating is is the the market is going to respond here by further falls potentially in in prices, Uh, and a lot of the uh, product that that is already in inventory or has now been planted for this year and this year's season uh, is is, is going to uh, create new challenges from a pricing perspective as we have to find alternative markets potentially for these products if these Uh, tariffs and these changes in market behavior and and the underlying uh, disagreements that we have with China and other important agricultural export market uh, governments can't be resolved uh, amicably and swiftly.
1: Do you think that uh, there will be more defaults, just from the financial perspective, as the price falls of a lot of these commodities?
0: Well, I think that the, the, the pressure that's been building in, in agricultural production in the United States over the last two, three, four years, for the reasons I described, uh, is likely to intensify, as I say, if these, if these trade uh, disagreements are not amicably and swiftly resolved. And, and one consequence of that would, of course, be potentially you know, more producers and, and other institutions involved in agricultural production and processing and the like. Uh, falling into financial stress.
1: I'm wondering whether people within the farming community uh, view this as the U.S. needing to capitulate or China needing to stop. I mean, are they viewing this in political terms or do they not really care? They just want the uncertainty to sort of end and allow things to get back to the way they used to be.
0: Well, I think I think if you ask you know ten or a hundred different people, you'll get ten or a hundred different opinions. Uh, all of them, I would suggest, would be very well informed because agricultural producers in the United States, being so significantly dependent on foreign export markets, are actually quite knowledgeable and sophisticated in understanding what's going on in, in places like China, Mexico, and Canada, where a lot of their product uh, is sold. And while they may have a thoughtful view about how best to resolve these issues. I think for the, for the majority of people, what they want is for these issues to be resolved and for some certainty to come back into the marketplace, because they all know, as we do, uh, that, that this is not just an issue today. Over the next 20 years or 25 years, we think there will be more than 2 billion more people on the earth, and 90% of them will be in India, China, and Africa. And that is a substantial upside trade uh, export opportunity for the United States, uh, which has the world's most successful and efficient agricultural production complex. Uh, and, and for us to be able to capitalize on that opportunity over the next five, 10, 15, 20 years, we need certainty. And that certainty needs to be built on a foundation of, of access on a free, fair, and equitable basis to foreign markets where uh, where people are going to need to buy uh, our surpluses, and they're going to want to buy our surpluses because they're such
1: high quality. Tom, just real quick here, we just have about a minute left. Which state do you think will get hit hardest by the tariffs?
0: Uh, it, you know, it depends on how all of this plays out, uh, and I can't tell you down to the down to the dime. But if you look at, you know, you could answer that question almost specifically f- by commodity group. So, for example, almost eighty percent of the cotton produced in the United States is. Is exported, right? Uh, uh, almost 50% of the soybeans are exported. Uh, a substantial portion of that goes to goes to China. Well, a lot of our soybeans come from uh, the Midwest, including places like you know Iowa, yeah. Illinois, and other states. You know, it's the breadbasket commodity-producing states particularly that produce uh, some of the highest volume products uh, that may may experience the most uh, difficulties.
1: Tom Halverson, thank you so much for joining me today. Tom Halverson is President and Chief Executive Officer of CoBank, which extends loans and other banking services to farms and other agricultural producers across the U.S. It is hard to parse out the noise from what you really need to pay attention to right now. Our next guest is going to talk about uh, that process from an investment perspective. Aaron Kennan joins us now. He's co-founder and chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management, uh, which is based in New York. Aaron, thank you so much for being with me. And I just want to start with the idea that the top headlines today on this otherwise slow summer uh, Monday has to do with children being taken from their families and immigration policy and who's to blame and then you have a potential trade war uh, with China and the U.S. This in the past few months has been noise for the markets that most people have tried to block out. What are you paying attention to right now?
2: Well, thanks for having me, Lisa, and certainly we don't want to discount the importance of humanitarian concerns at the border, but we are keeping our eyes on the fundamentals of what's happening in the economy and trying to understand how that will impact various asset classes. So, for example, in the United States, we're, we're still looking at a, a robust economic picture, both from the perspective of fundamental data like retail sales and uh, consumption and sentiment, as well as, frankly, the underlying earnings, which, as we know, in Q1 were really strong and we expect will be actually quite strong in Q2 based on a bunch of different data points that that we're looking at. I think the the story, though, uh, unlike 2017, Lisa, where we saw this sort of synchronized global growth story is that, the Eurozone and even China to a great extent, they're hitting some speed bumps. And I think it's, um, it's, it's not the tale of two stories because growth is still positive, but certainly uh, there, there's much more to parse through at the moment.
1: President Trump's uh, top economic advisor today said that this is the time to start a trade skirmish with China because the U.S. economy is strong enough to withstand any potential setback, even short term, uh, given the fact that it's full speed ahead right now. Do you agree?
2: I don't. I think uh, the trade skirmishes are things that tend to happen in public, and I think very important policy matters, even with countries that are not our allies, but particularly countries that are. I'm not referring now to China, but countries like Canada and countries within the Eurozone. You deal with a lot of disagreements in private because when you come to a conclusion, the other side's able to save face and move forward, and that has huge political benefits. So as much as I agree with some of the concerns that the current administration has with China and maybe even with some of our allies and reviewing things like NAFTA, I think the approach is somewhat flawed in that it's not allowing for them to achieve their own set objectives.
1: So are you changing any of your uh, trading strategies or your portfolios in response to some of these trade concerns, or is that sort of uh, all hypothetical at this point?
2: Well, so the real question on the trade war side is, are we actually going to enter a trade war, or is someone going to blank? Will it be the U.S.? In the case of the U.S. and China, well, could it be China? We don't know the outcome of that for sure. As it pertains to how we're thinking about clients and their portfolios, I mean, certainly one trend that's worth looking at that isn't specific to 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 trade wars, but it's specific to a trend over the last six months is inflation versus growth. Inflation was a real concern as we sort of moved through the first quarter of this year. It seems to have subsided. The data suggests that that's warranted for it to be subsided. And and now what we're seeing is a concern around growth. And so for the fixed income asset class, that's actually a a bit of a positive thing, right? So if inflation were to go up, yields would probably trend higher, whereas if if growth were to slow down, yields were to trend lower. So that's sort of a roundabout way of me saying, I don't mind nudging sort of fixed income average maturity or average duration towards a benchmark here, whereas at the beginning of the year, I had a tendency to be a little shorter duration. So we are making adjustments based, Based on the economic fundamentals that are that are occurring before us um, but we, we're certainly not making predictions as to the likelihood of a, an all-out trade war
1: so you've been lengthening the duration of your fixed income portfolio is that correct
2: yeah yeah we, we've, we've been willing to to, to, to move it modestly um, outward as ten-year treasuries have risen call it 50 basis points uh, this year and as the paradigm has shifted from inflation to growth concerns, um, we think that it, it's a prudent thing uh, for for us to do, to not make a huge bet by being a uh, short duration here uh, at the moment. As it pertains to equities, you know, what's interesting is earnings growth has been very robust, Lisa, but multiples, forward multiples, have come down. So the market's cheaper, even as uh, corporate earnings have proven uh, stronger. So, again, we're, we're not super uh, bullish, per se, because we've had a huge 300 percentage point run in the United States. But uh, but we're still constructive. And I would also say that when you look at uh, the duration of this expansion since uh, the bottom of the Great Recession or since the last expansionary peak in the fall of 2007, yeah. the cumulative GDP that has occurred since that period is only – about 15%. So it's a very shallow expansion that we've had. Now, some could view that as a negative. We view it as a positive, meaning that inventories haven't been able to overshoot and that the expansion may have many more months, many more quarters of legs here, unlike some of the other expansionary periods of the last hundred years.
1: How concerned are you about the fact that non-financial companies are increasingly levering up right now, especially uh, given the fact that AT&T and Comcast are poised to Uh, (laughs) buy Time Warner and possibly the Fox assets and would end up with $350 billion of bonds and loans on their books, This, according uh, to a study that was highlighted in the Wall Street Journal today. Does that worry you? I think on,
2: on uh, in isolation it, it doesn't worry us, uh, or I should say in isolation it could worry us, but when, when when we look at the reality of where we are in the interest rate complex, where monetary authorities are around the world, this is still a very easy money environment. Um, with a lack of inflation, with the ECB still at the zero bound and very dovish last week, with Kuroda in Japan, very dovish. And uh, yes, the United States is, is, is sort of ahead of the curve on, on, on normalizing policy. We think that if global growth truly does decelerate meaningfully, they're going to hit the pause button. That's not our base case right now. Uh, we still think that one or two rate hikes this year, perhaps even two, uh, is possible. But M&A activity has been robust. The cost of money relative to historicals is still relatively inexpensive. So we're not particularly concerned about that at the moment.
1: Thank you so much for being with me. Aaron Kennan is co-founder and chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management based in New York. Uh, Really interesting to hear this sort of uh, on one hand and on the other, we are getting to uh, sort of the final innings, people say, although they've been saying that for years, of a credit cycle, yet earnings do look solid and expectations do look solid uh, going forward. We've entered an escalatory cycle of tit-for-tat trade disputes. Uh, This is the conclusion to analysts led by Michael Zizis over at Morgan Stanley, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist. Uh, And Michael joins us uh, now. Michael, thank you so much for being with me. So just let's start there. Why do you think that we're entering this cycle?
3: Yeah, well, so... Basically, I think the pattern of behavior now has made it pretty clear that this isn't just a negotiation, um, that uh, the U.S. and its allies have some, uh, or its trading partners have demonstrated some fundamentally different views of the payoffs of trade. So what I mean by that is that um, when the U.S. acts... And the U responds, the U or and or China responds. You know, the U.S. is acting in a way where it thinks it's leveling the playing field. The trading partners are responding in a way they think is leveling the playing field, and by definition, that means that they view the playing field differently. And you continue to escalate. That's problem one. And then problem two is um, both sides kind of disagree on how to kind of break the circuit. Right, And so negotiations would be one obvious way, and it would seem, for example, that the negotiations between the U.S. and China uh, were going to or, or thwart the initiation of the tariffs that were announced on Friday, but that didn't necessarily happen, and I think we got some insight into why that didn't happen uh, when Wilbur Ross told our European allies that he didn't think that we couldn't negotiate um, even after we'd instituted tariffs, the, so that the institution of tariffs shouldn't negate um, the possibility of negotiation. So, And the European allies uh, clearly view it differently. So you don't have an obvious circuit breaker, and you've got a dynamic which is escalatory. And so therefore, we think markets are now going to have to think a couple of steps ahead. It's not just about pricing what the Section 301 tariffs are going to do to GDP. You have to think about what the retaliation and then the re-retaliation means. And when it accumulates together, our concern is that we think we are very close to net offsetting all of the um, economic boost that was created this year by fiscal policy, both the tax cuts and the spending increases that were implemented. All
1: right. So let's go down the rabbit hole. Okay. What comes next after the uh, largely uh, farm focused tariffs that China has already announced?
3: So those tariffs are, if the the U.S. kind of follows what it's already said it would do, uh, they're in the middle of investigating, and um, if news is to be believed, uh, close to announcing, perhaps sometime in the next few weeks, an intention to tariff another $100 billion worth of um, Chinese imports. And if China holds true to what it stated it would do, it would respond in kind. Uh, which would require another round of uh, tariffs on its side. Now, one of the interesting things here is that um, China only imports about $130 billion worth of goods, so um, how it responds is a little bit murky, which is to say perhaps it's going to have to just further increase its tariffs to equate uh, the, the economic damage, or we'll have to take some other retaliatory actions. Uh, but that's kind of the next level we think you have to count for there. And then in terms of uh, um, Europe, the response on the steel aluminum tariffs, uh, the, the U.S. has flagged that um, tariffing foreign imports of autos is probably the next step there that we have to account for. So those are the two things we're watching out for now. $100 billion on tariffs, uh, hundred billion tariffs on $100 billion worth of Chinese imports, and then foreign auto tariffs.
1: Do you think that the market is taking this seriously, this risk of sort of a tit-for-tat escalation?
3: Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I, I think it's very hard to price in exactly how far the cycle goes before cooler heads prevail. So I think what you've seen in you know, the equity markets, for example, is I think it kind of Healthy respect for the unknown of this dynamic it kind of syncs with the the view of our U.S. equity strategy team, which is that we're going to be in a range bound for the balance of the year. 2750 price target on the S and P with a range between 26 and 29, because you know ultimately we priced in at the end of last year all the sort of benefits of the U.S. public policy agenda, i.e., the fiscal impulse that we got. And, you know, P.E. multiples uh, peaked basically the day that Senate, the Senate passed uh, uh, tax reform. And now we're in the middle of pricing in kind of the, uh, you know, the, the less desirable parts of the U.S. public policy agenda. And that means that we, uh, you know, we kind of erode the benefits that were priced in at the end of the last year. So having kind of a range-bound, choppy, and ultimately, you know, kind of a flattish market for the year, makes sense to us. We think these things are perhaps less than the price. If you look at the credit markets, which are still hovering around um, all-time tights, I think the rates markets over the course of the year are going to show this more through even flatter curves and ultimately a lower 10-year yield by the end of the year.
1: Michael Zizis, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, Your report was fascinating and really illuminating, a really interesting way to look at the fact that there isn't really a circuit breaker, in your words, to uh, change this cycle of the U.S. threatening tariffs, imposing them, and then the European Union and China retaliating in kind. Michael Zizis is chief U.S. public policy and municipal strategist for Morgan Stanley in New York. The new era of advertising is really interesting because it's hard to know how companies should really be measuring the efficacy of their advertisements on platforms such as Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Well, Jamie Gilpin focuses on this uh, in part as uh, her role as chief marketing officer at Sprout Social. She joins us now. Jamie, uh, your company just put out a fascinating study taking a look at just how companies are using social media, the fact that Facebook is still the uh, the key social media platform that they use, and the efficacy of some of these ads. Can we just start with Facebook? Why does Facebook have such sticking power as the influencer?
4: Sure, and thanks for having me. Really excited to talk about this. Um, There's so much data in this report, um, and and you're right. We really did focus on, um, or actually, the data really brought to light um, the focus on ROI and how marketers, um, all of us, are thinking differently about the social channels and and ultimately the the value they provide um, to our overall uh, business strategy, not just marketing. Um, And so, you you asked about Facebook. Um, You know, it's interesting. We talk about this a lot internally. You know, Facebook was, in a lot of ways, sort of the, the first social, um, the first social channel or platform or network. And so it's still, because of that, you know, the Kleenex, if you will, um, it still has, you know, the the lion's share of both usage from a consumer perspective. Um, You've seen the report, it's it's upward of 90% of consumers use Facebook, um, but also on the marketer side. So 97% of marketers using um, Facebook as one of their their major platforms. But what I also thought was really interesting, um, because the data also shows the usage. And so while it's still one of the um, most popular uh, networks from both a consumer and from a marketer's point of view. Um, consumers are starting to tell us that we're u- they're using Facebook less, yeah. and they're starting to use Instagram more, right? They're starting to use um, YouTube, some of these other platforms more um, than, than perhaps the the Facebook and, and some of the, the early entrants.
1: So- Just let's take a step back for a second, and when a company decides uh, how to engage on social media with potential customers, how do they determine whether their message is getting across effectively?
4: Sure. And a lot of this comes back to um, sort of the traditional use cases of, um, of listening or analytics. Um, you know, they've been around for a while. Uh, actually, most organizations have, have been invested um, or investing in, in these types of um, sort of tools to help them hear, just actually get insight into your exact question. Um, are we, the messages that we're putting out there, are they resonating with our target audience? Um, because we, we also hear a lot of from brands, um, you know, just meeting with, with several, over the last few weeks, um, around you know the 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 audience on my my social channels are for sure the kids, maybe of the parents who are making the decisions um, to, to buy certain products. Um, but how do we really understand uh, you know the, the the power the influence of those of that audience that we're reaching out to, um, and then more importantly, how do we ensure that we're actually getting the audience that we need? And that really comes back to again a lot of these listening and analytics tools um, that 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 many brands Wait, are investing. in. hold
1: on a second. When you say listening and analytics, it's, it's things like people clicking on an ad or people, you know, just going and shopping on that on a website uh, after visiting Facebook, which they could probably uh, get some insight into based on the cookies. Is that the kind of you got listening? It. You- okay
4: exactly sorry to take a step back sometimes I'm, I'm so far into this um, that, that I realize that, that others don't have the, the sort of the context so so yeah think of that exactly like right. listening at a broad scale but there are tools that can aggregate all of those different touch points that you just went through um, to to give you insight into what's happening at a broader level
1: so yeah. you were saying that you are starting to notice uh, that people are spending a little bit less time on Facebook and going to YouTube or Twitter or Instagram instead our companies are marketers is responding to that by advertising less or putting less of a focus on Facebook than perhaps they have uh, in the recent past?
4: No, and, and the main reason is just because uh, consumers are saying they're using it less, um, they're still using it quite a bit. I mean, upwards <laughs> of 12 hours a week, right, that consumers are uh, spending on Facebook. So it is still a, a, um, a very powerful network and platform um, for both consumers and, and brands, and, and quite frankly, for that connection between the two. Um, but you are starting to see, and this is what the data is, um, shows in the study, um, that, that marketers are starting to take a more serious look um, at Instagram and Twitter. Twitter in particular, still trying to figure out Pinterest, still trying to figure out YouTube, Um, you know, some of the... Definitely Snapchat, um, not quite, uh, you know, to the level of, of some of the, the other new entrants. But, but again, you know, we're dipping our toes and we're trying to figure out how we use these networks to make that ultimate connection that we're trying to, to drive.
1: Just real quick here, I'd love to get your take on whether social media budgets in general have been increasing uh, by marketers and just the scope of, of just how much more uh, they're putting toward uh, social media.
4: Sure, yeah, I found this actually um, really interesting. Um, You know, we talked, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation around ROI, um, return on investment yeah exactly return on investment and really and turn uh, honestly a return on effort because um, this is more than just um, it's more than just budgets it's also people as well. and so um, while uh, marketers are, are having a challenge really um, applying a direct return on investment from their social efforts, they are still absolutely making an investment here. but what's interesting is they're making it with their budget. So 57% of marketers are saying they're going to allocate more budget to social marketing and that um, that comes by from ads. It comes by by tools, right? There's lots that goes into that. But what's interesting on that is only 31% said that they're going to hire more staff. Interesting. So while, you know, and that's where that um, sort of that lever, as we think about marketers, the staff is a, a longer term investment. And so um, while I see, while I know and I have confidence in this platform and networks as a, as a huge opportunity to communicate and more importantly, connect with my customer and consumer base, um, I'm willing to put more budget there. But I'm still trying to figure out the staff side. Um, And so I think there's a a really interesting nuance there in the data.
1: Jamie Gilpin, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Jamie Gilpin is Chief Marketing Officer for Sprout Social. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.